So let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful day and just, just the beautiful weather and the chance to pause in our busy lives and just reflect on you and your goodness. We pray this morning in this first hour as we think about the coming tribulation that it would just remind us that you have all things fully within your control and that nothing escapes your notice and that ultimately your word will come true just as you promised it would. So we give you this time now and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are continuing our study of uh, the end times. We're calling this What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview uh, of the end times. I want to remind you that a corollary to what we're talking about for the last several months here on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock is a new series we started Wednesdays called What in the World is Going On, which takes a look at more current events and uh, particularly uh, things related to the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and a lot of the evil things that, are, that Satan is using to kind of set the stage from his perspective. And if you haven't watched uh, that series, I encourage you to check that out at notbyworks.org, especially the one from last Wednesday, just a few days ago, uh, in which uh, we looked at the Great Satanic Reset Part 3, COVID-19 and the experimental bioinjections. But as far as our Sunday morning uh, series, we're following roughly the outline in my eschatology book, What Lies Ahead, a Biblical Overview of the End Times. And right now we're in chapters 12 and 14, if you're kind of tracking along with that book, which is all about the tribulation. And uh, we're going to camp out here for a while because there's a lot of material in God's Word that relates to the tribulation and uh, that future seven-year period. In fact, it's kind of interesting if you think of the end times, which, as you've heard me say many times, constitutes about one-sixth of the Bible, which is unfulfilled prophecy related to the end times. Um, if you think about the bulk of that, most of it, the biggest section of it, deals with just seven years. You know, you've got the thousand-year millennium, you've got the eternal state and the new heavens and the new earth, you've got the rapture and certain events that take place after the rapture, before the official start of Daniel's 70th week. You've got a lot of, a lot of information related to the end times, but it seems like God's Word spends the greatest amount of time focused on one seven-year period. And that seven-year period is this section that we've talked about right here in yellow, uh, a seven-year period, uh, often referred to as Daniel's 70th week. We're going to review that briefly this morning as part of our review of the tribulation in the Old Testament. Uh, but you can see that uh, a lot takes place during that seven-year period. You've got the rise of the Antichrist. You've got God's wrath being poured out through the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments. You've got the ministry of the two witnesses. You've got the ministry of the 144,000. Obviously, the Antichrist reign of terror with the false prophet and the, um, the, the uh, abomination of desolation at the midpoint when he desecrates the temple and demands that everybody take the mark and worship him. Uh, you've got all kinds of things uh, taking place during that seven-year period. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to kind of get to most of that uh, as much detail as we can in the coming weeks, but we started out last week talking about Old Testament terminology that refers to this future time of judgment uh, that we're calling the tribulation. And so we talked uh, last time about really the first uh, 10 or 12 of those. We saw how the Old Testament re refers to this direct intervention of God into the affairs of mankind to bring His judgment on the earth as the birth pangs, the day of the Lord, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the day of wrath or the day of the Lord's wrath, uh, the day of trouble and distress or devastation and desolation, 
darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, the day of vengeance, Isaiah talks about that, the time of Jacob's trouble from Jeremiah the prophet, and remember uh, Jacob uh, is uh, the, the, the name of Israel, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and so when we're talking about the time of Jacob's trouble, we're talking about Israel. Uh, one of the many uh, reasons that we know the church will not pass through the tribulation, even though there's a lot of false teaching out there uh, that says it will. I, I, almost every week I get an email from somebody upset because uh, they think the church is going to be in the tribulation and I taught otherwise. Just this past week I got one from a very nice lady, very gracious, uh, but she was... Uh, uh, somewhat condescending in that she basically said, you don't know what you're talking about, let me recommend a few books uh, that you might read that will help correct the error of your way. And so I tried to be just as gracious in my response. Uh, uh, I normally don't respond to critical emails because usually they're real ugly and just you're stupid and you don't know what you're talking about. But this lady was very gracious, so I took the time to respond. I felt like I owed her that, and I, I just said, look, I appreciate that. I happen to know those two authors you talked about. In fact, I've written journal articles interacting with their uh, books that have been published in journals, and I've uh, taught at nine dispensational institutions on the pre-trib rapture. I speak at the pre-trib research council, which is the sort of the beachhead for the entire dispensational pre-trib view, started by my dear friend, the late uh, Tim LaHaye, at least acquaintance. I knew him, talked to him many times at that conference. Uh, So I basically said, you're not going to change my mind, but, you know, I, I respect your view, but I encourage you to look at Scripture through a literal, grammatical, historical lens. And when you do that, you understand, for example, that Daniel's prophecy about this seven-year period, which we're going to look at in a moment, uh, clearly says that it's a covenant with uh, the, the Lord's people and, and His uh, holy city, Jerusalem. It's for Israel. Uh, you see pl- passages like Jeremiah 30, verse 7, that calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. You see the fact that the largest section in the New Testament that deals with the tribulation, which is Revelation chapters 6 to 18, so 13 chapters of Revelation, 13 of the 22, uh, all deal with the tribulation, and there's not a single reference to the church. It's all about Israel. That's why you have 144,000 Jewish missionaries, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes of Israel. That's why you have the whole center of the world during that seven-year time being Jerusalem. That's why the Antichrist sets himself up in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And uh, you understand uh, that the, the church and God's program for the church, the bride of Christ, and Israel and God's program for Israel, the apple of his eye, are not the same. He has uh, different plans for both of them. And this seven-year period that we're talking about currently is the culmination of a 490-year prophecy with Israel. And the church is not a part of it. Uh, Moreover, uh, and and, and I've dealt with arguments for the pre-trib rapture in many, many places. In the book, What Lies Ahead, there's a chapter on it. Uh, My book, The Imminency of the Rapture, or my my DVD, The Imminency of the Rapture, deals with it, and many others, One Minute After the Rapture, and so forth, uh, deals with it. So I don't want to turn this into a treatise on the pre-trib rapture, but I always feel like there are people joining us or watching the videos that have been influenced by false teaching that sees the church in Israel as one group and no distinction, and therefore thinks that there's only one return of Christ, and everybody's going to face these things we're talking about, on earth. And and so I always like to point out, if that's the case, in what way is the rapture a blessed hope? Why does God's Word call it a blessed 
hope and something that we are to comfort one another with. The tribulation, as we've been talking about, is all about judgment. Judgment doesn't bring comfort. Judgment brings fear. Uh, but the fact that God is going to rescue the church before the great and terrible day of the Lord is a, a cause for hope and for comfort. And uh, now, I know even though I could not have said it any more clearly than I just did, there are probably people that are either watching right now or will listen or, and watch later who heard me say something different. And what they heard me say was that the rapture is going to get Christians out of here before they have to suffer. Well, I've never said that, and nobody that I know in all of uh, theology that teaches a pre-trib dispensational approach to Scripture has ever said that. That is a complete red herring and false understanding of the view. Many Christians have suffered. Many Christians are suffering. For 2,000 years, uh, the church has suffered, has been persecuted, has been martyred, and nowhere does Scripture promise that the church won't face suffering. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. In uh, the night he was betrayed in the upper room, he told the disciples, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have tribulation, but, I, but don't worry. And uh, Paul said, All who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So what I'm not saying, even though people accuse me and others of saying it, is that the church won't suffer. What we are saying is very plainly, because the Bible says it unambiguously, is that the bride of Christ, the church, will not have to uh, be on earth during the great outpouring of God's wrath, which is the tribulation period. As we saw, you know, I just mentioned several of the Old Testament designations are the great and terrible day of the Lord or the day of the wrath or the day of the Lord's wrath and so forth. So, uh, so I just encourage you if, you, if you've been influenced by the false view that the church will go through the tribulation, uh, read scripture. Put aside, don't, don't, don't read my book even. Don't listen to me. Don't read other people. Read the word of God in its plain, normal, natural setting, and you'll understand that uh, God has a special blessing for the church, uh, which is his bride, that will rescue us before the start of this period of time we're talking about right now. So we left off last time with the day of trumpet and alarm from Zephaniah 1.16. And next we come to the day of the Lord's anger. The day of the Lord's anger. This is another Old Testament designation that is used to describe this future seven-year period, also from Zephaniah. Seek the Lord, all the meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. It's a message to the other nations, the pagan nations, to come to the Lord. And uh, this is indeed going to be a day of God's anger. In fact, you come to the book of Revelation when Christ comes back to climax that seven-year period at the Battle of Armageddon, the final moments of that seven-year period. And what do we read? Uh, this is a, talking about Christ, the Messiah, coming back to take the throne. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, we've already talked about wrath. Wrath and anger are obviously our synonyms, and indeed this will be a day of the Lord's anger. You know, God is a merciful, loving, gracious God, but he's also a just, holy, righteous, and jealous and angry God. And they all sort of come together at the cross, right? If God wasn't an, a God of righteousness and justice, whose anger is kindled at sin, he would not have sent his very own son to the cross to shed his blood and die for our sins. That's anger, right? 
But yet it's because of His love and mercy that He allowed His, own, His only begotten Son to pay our penalty in our place on our behalf. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. And what we find in, in this future seven-year period is that the righteous indignation, the holiness, the justice, the anger, the wrath of God is, is being poured out. It's, it's, it's being stored up. Uh, for now, uh, for reasons known only to God. You know, we cry out for justice. Uh, the whole earth groans, Paul tells us in Romans 8, uh, because, by the way, the earth and every created thing is suffering from the penalty, the, the curse of sin. You know, you've heard me say this many times, but it's because of the curse of sin. When sin entered the world, it didn't just affect mankind in terms of separating us from a holy God and bringing death. The curse of sin destroyed the earth. It's the reason we have poison ivy and thorns on rose bushes and hurricanes and tornadoes, right? And so the whole earth is groaning right now for this time for God to bring judgment and make all things new again and, 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 and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and so uh, that's one of the reasons I love teaching and studying and reading about the future tribulation because it's the great equalizer. It sort of makes all things make sense. Right now they don't make sense, let's be honest. You know, it doesn't make sense that innocent people suffer and die. It doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't make sense that godly, righteous uh, people uh, die young or, or suffer. It doesn't make sense that evil people who are worshiping Satan are allowed to go on unchecked. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, uh, We all would cry out and say, bring justice now. And, but God, who is uh, long-suffering and uh, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9, is uh, working out his timetable in his, in his way and in his, uh, at his speed. And so we don't understand it, but we can look to passages like this and to subjects like the tribulation and take great comfort in knowing that God wins in the end and that God will bring justice, God will bring vengeance. Now, there's nothing in and of itself about this seven-year period and the biblical descriptions of it that are comforting. I mean, it would be uh, nobody wants to be on earth during that time, and nobody. Uh, but there will be. There will be millions, if not billions, on earth at that time. Anybody who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sin, and because of their faith in Him, been born again, and as a child, become a child of God, uh, anybody who has not done that is going to be here when the tribulation uh, occurs, if the Lord tarries his coming. And so, uh, or I mean, you know, if the, if the rapture were to happen in our lifetime and then the tribulation to follow in our, in our lifetime, if it, all, if it all comes about. Now, we don't know God's timetable. I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, the Luciferian timetable next Wednesday in our What in the World is Going On series. But the point is, right now, you need to make sure that you get your soul in order. You know, a lot of people are talking about preparation and, and uh, you know, survival and things as we see this world spiraling out of control and a talk of a national lockdown and all kinds of major evil things coming. We don't know if they will or not, but there's certainly a lot of chatter about it. And, and one of the things I want to remind everybody is that while you're preparing, as Proverbs 22.3 tells us to do, that's wise, don't neglect the one thing that matters most, which is your own soul. And make sure there's been a moment in your life when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you. And if you've done that, then that issue is settled. Your eternal life is secure. 
And then even though we look with uh, great anxiety, perhaps, at some of the things that are coming, we know that God is in control and that ultimately uh, our home is in heaven. Uh, so this is, this is the description that we see. It's a, it's a day of the Lord's anger. Uh, it's also described in Joel as the destruction from the Almighty. Joel 1.15, the destruction from the Almighty. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord. Remember, we've looked at this verse previously in the description, day of the Lord, is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. So remember, uh, ultimately, this old earth, sin-stricken world, is going to be destroyed. Uh, it cannot be renovated. You cannot put a Band-Aid on it. There's no chance for a repair. It just needs to be scraped and a new earth, a new universe built on top of it. And then we see number 15, the day of destruction, distress, and calamity. Obadiah uh, talks about this, the prophet. Uh, just one single chapter, but he talks a lot about this future seven-year period, the ultimate fulfillment of God's judgment. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. So he's talking here about the nations that scoffed and mocked and laughed at Israel as she continued to be carried off into captivity you know, by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Romans, ultimately, and so forth. Um, now, the Roman... Uh, uh, captivity hadn't occurred at this time that Obadiah was writing, but it wasn't far off. Obadiah wrote in the 6th century B.C. Um, he says, Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. And so God's going to turn the tables, and he's going to make this a time of judgment upon God's, you know, his enemies, which are the enemies of Israel. And then, of course, uh, the Old Testament does use the term tribulation, which is a, a common New Testament term, as we shall see in a moment, for this seven-year period. And that's what we most commonly call it is the tribulation period. But in the King James Version of Deuteronomy 4.30, when thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient unto his voice, and so on and so forth. This is in the blessings and cursings passage, ultimately pointing towards the final judgment. Uh, the New King James Version here for tribulation translates it distress, but the King James translates it tribulation. And then we come to number 17, which is one week. One week. Now that's the uh, New King James Version, and many other English versions call it a week, but it comes from Daniel's famous prophecy in Daniel 9. And I want to talk about this for a few moments. The prophecy goes like this. It starts in verse 24, but the key verse is verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. One week. Now the prophecy starts out in verse 24 talking about 70 weeks. 70 weeks. Now as I'm going to show you, the word week is the word Shabuah. It means a seven-year period in this context. It's very clear from the context that, that that's what it means. But Daniel's 490-year plan, which is outlined there uh, on the screen, uh, starts with a 483-year period, which amazingly, uh, really amazing to no one who believes God's Word, uh, but, but uh, amazing to, to many skeptics, was fulfilled precisely to the day, because Daniel tells us that that 490-year plan will commence with the decree of Artaxerxes, which we know historically occurred March 5th, 444 B.C., 
And if you count forward 483 years, which is 173,880 days in a Jewish calendar, you arrive precisely at the day of Christ's triumphal entry, March 30th, 33 A.D. So in other words, Daniel says, from the time of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes shall be 173,880 days. And he's, that, that was fulfilled when Messiah, not when he was born, not when he began his Galilean ministry, but when he rode into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy on the back of a donkey, offering the kingdom formally. And, and instead of being crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords and taking the long-awaited Messianic throne, he was crowned with thorns and uh, crucified. And, uh, of course, that was all part of God's plan, also predicted in the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel himself predicts it because he says after Messiah comes, which we know was fulfilled on the day of the triumphal entry, we celebrate that on a Sunday every year, the Sunday before Easter, just because church history frequently kind of marks moments, uh, you know, on the wrong day. But we know historically, if you do the calendar work, that it actually occurred on Monday of Passion Week. Um, but anyway, uh, he came into Jerusalem fulfilling the first 483 years. And then Daniel tells us after that, the Messiah is going to be cut off. And he was four days later on Friday when he was crucified and laid in the tomb. And there may be some listening to this that have been influenced by some uh, understandable but nevertheless incorrect teaching about the timetable of Christ's resurrection uh, because the Bible says he would be in the tomb three days and three nights. And so the, using that uh, Hebrew idiom, they assume that it means 72 hours, which it does not. And I've written about that elsewhere. Back when we talked about this a few weeks ago, I handed out uh, a handout uh, showing you uh, how the term three days and three nights is used throughout Scripture to mean any part of a day and any part of a night. So he was in the tomb on a Friday, all day on a Saturday, and in the tomb on a Sunday, thus fulfilling that, uh, that prophecy. And if anyone would like that, you can email me and I'll send it to you. I think there may even still be some at the back on the table back there. Uh, so don't be, mis don't be confused by that or led astray by that. The Passion Week is very clear. You know, he rode in on the back of a donkey on Monday. On Tuesday, he cleansed the temple and cursed the fig tree. On Wednesday, he gave the Olivet Discourse, which we just finished, what, 10 weeks, I think, talking about, or nine weeks, something like that. On Thursday, he had the upper room with his disciples, went to the garden to pray, was betrayed in the garden, arrested, tried hastily in a kangaroo court. By Friday morning, he was laid in the tomb. And, of course, Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he was the tomb was found empty as he rose from the dead. But Daniel tells us that after that first 483 years, those things would happen. Daniel also tells us that after that, the temple would be destroyed. And it indeed was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans uh, when the Roman general Titus led the charge to destroy uh, Jerusalem. But then Daniel tells us, and you'll notice the question mark there, that again, there will be one future week or one future seven-year period. Remember, the term week is the term Shabua, and it means seven-year period. It can mean, in certain contexts, a seven-day period. But in the context of Daniel 9, he's talking about years. Remember, he, he begins chapter 9, Daniel does, by asking the Lord, what's the next plan? And he, he re references Jeremiah's uh, 70 years of captivity, right? So he's already thinking in terms of years, 70 years. And he says, after these 70 years are about up, which they were about up, what comes next? 
Remember, Daniel was a 6th century B.C. prophet too. They were about to be, their exiles were about to begin returning to the land. And so God tells him, not the next 70 years of the plan, like Jeremiah had revealed, but the next 490 years of the plan, 70 years times uh, 7. So a Shabuah means a 7-year period. For example, it's been it's used in Jer- uh, Genesis chapter 29 when uh, 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 Jacob no Isaac no Jacob has to work for seven years I get my patriarchs mixed up sometime uh, to get uh, Rachel he had to work for one Shabuah remember uh, and uh, but then he, he they pulled a switcheroo and he had to work for seven more years because he got Leah and they ended up having to work for seven more years but that's the word Shabuah it means a seven year uh, period. So uh, there's one more seven-year period in the 490-year plan. Only 483 years of it have been fulfilled. And God often gives us prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in stages. In fact, the coming of Messiah is the chief example. We have lots of references, such as Isaiah 61, Isaiah 9, where the coming of Christ uh, is spoken of as if it's one event, but we know from the rest of the story in the New Testament that the first coming of Christ fulfilled certain aspects of it, the suffering servant, the atoning work, the ultimate sacrifice. But the second coming of Christ will fulfill the judgment and the reigning and the ruling and the one world uh, government of peace, justice, and righteousness. So it's not uncommon for prophecies to have uh, a fulfillment over time. And Daniel, just the terminology of Daniel in and of itself, makes that clear. He says, and you can see it in yellow in the blue boxes there, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Christ comes, will be 483 years. After that, the Messiah will be crucified and the city will be destroyed. Then the final seven years will begin. And so uh, that's uh, it's playing out exactly uh, like he talked about. So this uh, one week, if you will, is what is a term, a designation uh, for uh, the prophecy there in Daniel. Going back to verse 24, remember he said 70 weeks or 77-year periods, so 490 years. Remember, a week means seven years, so 70 times 7 is 490 years, and this is a 490-year plan. As I said, the first 483 have already been fulfilled, but we still look forward to the final fulfillment because God's Word is always fulfilled literally. It's one of the great reasons, one of the many reasons to study Bible prophecy. Way back in the beginning of this now 25-week-long series on end times, I started out in the very first session with giving you why should we study Bible prophecy. And one of the reasons I gave is that it reminds us that God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps His Word, and His prophecies are fulfilled literally. And it's amazing to me how so many uh, Bible teachers, even though they may be well-intentioned, uh, when they teach that you know there is no rapture, the church is going to have to suffer the wrath of God, even though we're told we're not under the wrath of God, uh, you know, they miss uh, the point that in the Old Testament, all the prophecies related to Christ's first advent were fulfilled literally precisely as the Bible told us they would be. He was literally born in Bethlehem, for example, literally born of a virgin. But for some reason, when they come to the passages that relate to his second coming, they spiritualize it and make it all you know, uh, figurative and not literal. And there's no justification for that. 
in many cases, it's the same prophecy. In many cases, it's even the same chapter of the same prophet. And yet they just suddenly switch their hermeneutic. Hermeneutic means Bible study method. They switch their methodology and say, even though this was literal, now suddenly I think it's not going to be literal. So, for example, they get to Ezekiel 40 to 48 and the description of the temple once Christ comes back and rules and reigns. And they think that's all one giant metaphor. Nine chapters in meticulous, glorious detail. And they just sweep it aside. And yet, and they think the church has replaced Israel. We are the new Israel. There's no literal future for national geographic Israel. No literal rebuilt temple. No literal throne. No literal boundaries, even though the boundaries are spelled out in great detail. They just shove that all aside. Uh, and there's an inconsistency there. Uh, but we believe in a consistent literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. And because uh, of that, we understand these prophecies will be fulfilled literally. So it's often called a time of... Uh, one week, or as you saw on my chart here, this seven-year period I put on there is, is the Daniel's 70th week, that final seven-year uh, period. Any questions about uh, Daniel's 70th week? Because it's such a key uh, prophecy. In fact, we sell a two-part DVD uh, on, uh, I think it's called something like Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation. It goes through Daniel 2 and Daniel 9. But any, I want to make sure that this is clear and uh, make sure there's no questions about Daniel's 490-year plan. Any questions or comments? Nancy. Um, I just had a question on when the, the 69 weeks, that was you know, calculated out to the, to the day. Can that same be said during the seven-year tribulation with that same timetable? We, we know it's seven years. Um, once the peace treaty is signed, is the clock starts ticking, and is I mean, can you put a date on the? Yeah. So great question. The question is, once the peace treaty is signed, according to Daniel nine twenty four to twenty seven, can we expect and count on the fact that it'll be precisely seven years to the moment, just like the first four hundred eighty three years were fulfilled to the moment? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, however. In the moment, in real time, of course, we won't be on earth during that time. We'll be in heaven. Uh, and so we won't need to worry about calculating it. We'll just knock on God's door and say, hey, how much longer till we ride on the white horses and come back and establish the kingdom on earth? And he'll say, oh, you know, I'll send out an alarm or something. <laughs> but, uh, but for those on earth, hypothetically, if they knew the moment the pen signed the treaty, they could start a stopwatch and they would know that seven years later the return of Christ would occur. The problem with that is uh, two things. First of all, Jesus warns repeatedly in the Olivet Discourse, as we saw for the previous several weeks of study, that that will be a time of unprecedented deception. And so those left behind on earth are going to be subject to the greatest deception ever before on planet earth by the great deceiver himself, Satan, who indwells the Antichrist and rules and reigns in a tyrannical you know, government. Uh, world government. So first of all, there's some deception there. But secondly, just speaking pragmatically, uh, it's not clear whether everyone on earth will be privileged to the knowledge of precisely when the treaty was signed, right? So you don't know exactly when to start the clock counting. So, but, but clearly either way they will, you know, and by, by example, we often have uh, treaties uh, that are signed and agreements that are signed between, say, the United States and whoever, and 
and often, uh, or even just think about certain laws that are signed into law by the president or decrees or presidential orders and things. Uh, and often there will be a big ceremony and you'll have, uh, you know, the president sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office and all these other dignitaries behind him, typically congressmen and senators that helped draft the legislation. And, and Reagan was the one that started years ago having like civilians that are somehow affected by this legislation come in and stand beside him. But anyway, it's always big pomp and circumstance. And they often have a whole tray full of pens and, and different, you know, he'll sign maybe, I guess, one letter or one word or something, you know, of the, of the signature with each pen. And then people get a ceremonial pen. All that's for, for show. The actual treaty, you know, was signed probably back you know, a few hours earlier in, in an office somewhere, and the clerk took it and put it in the National Archives or something. So we don't know exactly when the treaty begins. I think we'll, the people on Earth who are paying attention will be able to tell within days or possibly even hours, but they won't know the exact moment. So good question. Yeah? You're saying the Jewish calendar has how many days? 360 days. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Satan Yes, Satan, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, he's not omniscient, so unless he happens to be in the room when it's signed, he won't know the exact moment either. Uh, he, he can discern like we can, uh, but uh, unless he knows, unless he's right there, he's not, he doesn't have you know, uh, supernatural sight or vision or knowledge or hearing. So, he dwells in well, the question is, when does that indwelling take place? Good, good point. So the comment, uh, this, I love this church. You guys are so smart. Um, you, you stump me at least twice a week, uh, but that's okay. That's why I've got my kids. They can help, help me answer it like they did a couple weeks ago. Uh, so uh, it, it appears from the biblical record that the Antichrist uh, really doesn't become indwelt and fully empowered until the midpoint even though the, Satan is influencing him and he's working as according to the power of Satan, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. That's an open question. I've often thought that it's from the beginning and, and I tend to teach that or imply that, in which case then, yeah, Satan will know at that moment. Um, but again, Satan knows the truth because he knows the Bible. He just doesn't believe it. And so it, it's, um, it's gonna, we're going to see, as the book of Revelation talks about, and we'll get into this down the road, that there's an increase in intensity of, of the, the orge, or wrath, as the, the Greek word is orge, of Satan, and simultaneously the wrath, the orge, of God. And so presumably that's because Satan sees that his time is short. Uh, he may very well you know, have been present in the room when the peace treaty was signed, but even if not, he's going to begin to see this, the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments unfold. He is the first seal judgment, by the way. The seal, seal number one is the unveiling of the Antichrist. So he's the star of the show at that point. So yeah, no, he's gonna. He'll 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 know. He just doesn't see that the outcome. It doesn't believe the outcome. Yeah. Yeah, it's very possible that uh, that it's, I mean, it is his pride. That's what led to his downfall to begin with. Uh, so however we want to describe it, the fact of the matter is he's self-deceived, which is the worst kind of deception. He, he knows it. Deep down, he may even believe it, but he's deceived himself into thinking that he can win out 
in the end anyway. Anybody else? Okay, so let's move on. We've got a few more here from the Old Testament. Uh, it's called the indignation in Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet calls it uh, the indignation. He says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. Remember, uh, Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse to uh, the children of Israel who are alive during that tribulation period and by then have believed the gospel, when you see this coming, head for the hills, hide out, protect yourselves. Uh, David in Psalm 69, this is an imprecatory psalm. We're going to talk about psalms today in the worship hour as I introduce a new uh, series on selected psalms for the next uh, uh, several weeks. Uh, but this is what we call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is when the psalmist call, cries out for punishment on his enemies. It's like, God, please you know, stop these people and give them what they deserve and judge them. And this is Psalm 69 is a lengthy imprecatory psalm, but verse 69 says, Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. And uh, remember, when you think of human history, 6,000 years old, which is not that old, certainly not as old as the uh, death-loving eugenicist Darwin taught that it was and his famous uh, uh, propaganda piece, uh, which became popular and began to be, be used in all compulsory government schools for about 100 years, teaching seventh graders that they all evolved from a wet rock 65 million years ago, uh, when really all Darwin was trying to say is we need to get rid of people of color and people that are maimed and hurting and, and, and the useless breathers. Let's kill them all. That, that's what Darwin was all about. Uh, but anyway, uh, so for 6,000 years, the, the world has cried out for justice. There have been one injustice after another. Uh, now, God's working out his plan, obviously. He's in full control. He's sovereign. Uh, Psalms tells us our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. I think that's Psalm 115, verse 3. So God is in charge, and there have been pockets of revival. There have been great outpourings of the Spirit of God. There have been great moves of God. But let's not forget that as a, as a percentage of the whole, the 6,000 years of human history have gotten progressively worse, not better. Depravity is a degenerative disease. It doesn't get better if left alone. The only solution to depravity is faith alone in Christ alone, which pays our penalty for sin and gives us eternal life, uh, quickens our spirit, regenerates us in that moment of faith, and allows us to have a relationship with our Creator. And from that point on, now we, our citizenship is in heaven. We see things with a different perspective. We have a different outlook on life. We're not of this world. We're just sojourners passing through. And so all of the injustices on earth, though they cannot help but affect us because we live in this context, still should be understood and viewed through the lens of faith and trust in what God is doing uh, throughout the ages. So here's one example where in a moment in time, and we don't know who the exact enemy was. Uh, uh, I don't believe we do. He may have... Uh, Sometimes in the inscription, he gives us the context, or the psalmist does, especially David often. Nope, uh, it doesn't, uh, doesn't really tell us. It's just a plea for God's help and judgment on his, uh, his enemies. And then we have the overflowing scourge, one of my favorite definitions. I would only used a couple of times, uh, uh, or actually one time is all, and by the 8th century prophet Isaiah, uh, when he says, when the overflowing scourge passes through, overflowing scourge. Just think about God's wrath bubbling over. It's finally reached the tipping point. 
And then finally we have the fire of his jealousy. The fire of his jealousy. This is a phrase that the prophet Zephaniah used in the 600s B.C. He says, uh, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in, in, in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. And he goes on to say a couple verses later, All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Notice the context there. Uh, Wait for me until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And that's, uh, that's what's coming. So then you come to the New Testament, and although there are passing references to this future seven-year tribulation in a variety of places, there are really four key passages, I'll just put them all on the screen here, that deal with uh, the New Testament. The first two are the biggest ones. The first one there is the Olivet Discourse. I didn't write Olivet Discourse on there, but that's what those passages are. We just spent 10 weeks recently going through Matthew 24 and 25, and Jesus teaching about this seven-year period. In fact, he quotes Daniel by name in the midst of it. We know he's talking about the seven-year period. I've also shown you a chart um, uh, where the first part of Matthew 24 correlates precisely with Revelation 6 and the seal and then following the trumpet and and bold judgments. And so uh, the Olivet Discourse is all about this seven-year period. It's recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21. But then the biggest section that gives us the greatest detail about this seven-year period is Revelation chapters 4 to 19. And uh, in uh, Revelation 4 to 19, we're going to come back to that in a moment, but it really is a blow-by-blow, especially starting in verse 6 with about the tribulation. And then Paul, in two of his earliest epistles, uh, written around 51 A.D., remember uh, Paul got saved in uh, 35 A.D., two years after the resurrection. Early on, after the resurrection, he was murdering Christians and leading uh, raids on people's houses and dragging them out into the streets, which is just an amazing uh, testimony to God's grace. You know, if Paul can be saved, anybody can be uh, saved. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, that was in 35 A.D., then Paul spent 14 years studying the Word and sort of learning you know, all about God's plan. And then he began his first missionary journey in 48. And uh, right after that journey, when he got back to Antioch uh, in Syria, which was kind of a sending church that sent Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, he gets back in 49 A.D. and writes uh, Galatians, his first letter, you know, chronologically. We know Romans is the first one in the order of, in Scripture, but time-wise, Galatians came first. And then it was uh, on his second missionary journey uh, that he wrote First and Second Thessalonians in about 51 A.D. And so these two passages, chapter 2 in Second Thessalonians and chapter 5 in First Thessalonians, are talking about the future tribulation period. So there are ten designations of the tribulation, In the New Testament, the first is the great day of his wrath. We saw how Zephaniah the prophet frequently used that phrase, day of wrath, right? And uh, but we see in Revelation 6 at the start of the tribulation how the great day of his wrath has come. It's actually beginning. 
And I know we're just about out of time, so let me just, we'll pick up and go over this in more detail next week. But, you know, the book of Revelation is actually one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline. Uh, the devil has done a great job of convincing people who don't have an appetite to study the Bible in its literal grammatical historical sense uh, or don't have the time and patience to read it. They just need some chicken soup for the soul and some bumper sticker theology. But if you actually read the Bible in its plain sense, it's not that complicated. Uh, yes, Revelation is an apocalyptic genre. It does use a lot of figures of speech, but we all use figures of speech, right? It's very common in every language. And, and uh, that doesn't mean you can't understand what a person's saying. And similarly with the book of Revelation. So chapter 1 is the introduction, introducing Christ, the Revelation. Remember the last book of the Bible is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Revelations, plural, there is no such book. It's singular revelation. It's Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the revelation. And then uh, chapters 2 and 3 are literal letters that Jesus wrote to seven historical churches that were around in the late first century. And then chapters 4 and 5 set the stage for what's about to happen in that seven-year period of chapters 6 through 18. It's uh, a justification for the outpouring of God's wrath. We talked about this last week. Who is worthy to open the, the seals of judgment? The lamb is worthy because he was slain. And so then you get into the tribulation. And we'll come back to this next week, but this is that seven-year period, which is the bulk of the book of Revelation. It's the wrath of God. And uh, so uh, the wrath begins in chapter 6, and it continues until Christ comes back to tread the winepress of the, the wrath of God. All right, well, we got through, you know, one of the New Testament designations. So we will, uh, I really can't wait to get to the end. In fact, I did some work on it this week because I was hopeful we might uh, get there. But I want to talk ultimately about the purposes of the tribulation uh, before we get into some of the characteristics of the tribulation. Why a tribulation? Uh, but anyway, that'll have to wait at least another week, possibly two. But uh, any last minute questions before we wrap for the first hour? Anybody? Wonderful. All right, so we will reconvene here uh, in the church at uh, 10 o'clock for our worship hour. Those of you that are joining us by live stream, as you know, we don't begin the live stream until about 10.30, give or take five minutes, because uh, we only live stream uh, the message. Thanks.